Welcome back to Lunch Logic. This is Luke. This is Devin. This is Jason. Today we have Jason, who's the host of the podcasting show AlwaysAsking.com. Um, would you like to introduce what you're doing, Jason? Sure. Um, the AlwaysAsking.com website and associated YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash AlwaysAsking, is a place for me to uh, publish my research, which basically involves finding, thoroughly researching a particular deep question, like why does anything exist or what is consciousness or what is time or is there life after death? Any of these very deep questions, I try to research in as much depth as possible to find all the latest thinking on a question. And then I distill that into an article on the website and a YouTube video and a podcast recording to hmm. cover all of the latest and best thinking that humanity has developed. Some, In some cases, going back thousands of years, I try to cover the history of the development of all the answers. And uh, I like to then present kind of the latest and best thinking and ideas and theories that have been offered as mm -hmm. potential answers for each question. Mm -hmm. What kind of motivated you to start this? So I've always been fascinated by these these big questions since a, a very young age. Uh, I've always been kind of uh, almost obsessively curious. And when there's a question that people say, well, well no one knows, um, I think that just lights a fire in me to yeah. figure yeah. out, well, well, what do we know? What can we say on this particular question? And over time, uh, I'd say about 15 years ago, I started to write a book on the topic of uh, consciousness and reality and and then work on that book led me to create a website and YouTube channel because I think there's a lot of overlap of the topics in the book that I've been working on and the questions that I try to address on the website and yep. YouTube channel. So I think by developing these ideas here, I can almost, I, I think I'll end up reaching a broader audience because a lot of people these days don't have time for books. They like to just put on a YouTube video or listen to a podcast while sure. they're commuting and so forth. So I think these new forms of media hmm. are a lot more powerful and right. impactful of reaching a wide audience. Yeah, right. of course. Right. I, I checked um all of your videos and your articles as well. And one thing that really impressed me was the the question of why there's anything at all, why there's something rather than nothing. I mean, that kind of always has been has been my favorite question ever. And it I mean, it was kind of interesting how you had uh, very different theories on this. Um, so, yeah, w would you like to, you know, kind of tell us your uh, or tell us your personal kind of story on how you came across this question? Um. I think, and many philosophers have said it's perhaps the deepest and most important question to answer because if we don't have this an answer to this question, someone said we can't even answer any question unless we answer this question first. For example, uh, we don't know how, how big reality is, so we can't say what does or doesn't exist. We might be able to say what does or doesn't exist in our universe and what we can see, but unless we can explain why this universe exists, we really have no idea what might else 
exists beyond the universe that we can see? Is there yeah. a multiverse? Are there other beings? Are there other forms of life out there? Even if uh, there's no other life in this galaxy, even if we search every planet in this galaxy and we don't find life, we can't say, well, there's no other life out there because maybe we go out further or cross into some other dimension or other universe that exists in part of a larger multiverse. Well, maybe there are new forms of life there that we just, for technical reasons, can't access. But it's all enveloped in this question of why is there anything? And mm. you start with any question and say why, and you just keep asking why, and almost always leads to some right. yeah. fundamental question like this. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, we've actually had a we've had a number of episodes like sort of dealing with this topic, and um, I believe we have an episode back in our earlier days called "Why," where we do we're like you know I wonder if um, we add, we keep asking why, and you know we Where's it gonna go? the, the fundamental question yeah. of why there's anything at all. So yeah, it's 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 good to hear you know uh, that you have similar thoughts on this. Oh, thank you. Yep. Devin, do you want to share your personal story on how you came across this question? Sure. I mean, uh, as far back as I can remember, you know, I was just like staring at, <laughs> at the ceiling of my my bedroom, just wondering about things. And, you know, eventually, uh, you know, you stay up long enough and then you have this sort of epiphany. It's like, wait, well, why does anything exist at all? You know, um, yeah, and it is kind of like uh, step by step, you just keep going further, and then eventually, um, you reach this sort of base. You know, this this mm -hmm. uh, fundamental uh, question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as I wanted to know, like, why there is a world at all, the purpose of the universe itself. But what really fascinated, what really fascinated me was the question of how there is something at all. Because, well, something can emerge out of something or something can can emerge out of nothing or something could be self-existing but either way it's kind of kind of doesn't make sense because how does something just exist or how does something appear out of nothing mm -hmm. so either way it's it's really it's very mysterious exactly i think that's part of what's so alluring about the question because and logically speaking it has to be one of those two possibilities either something emerged out of nothing which of course seems impossible or at least it's beyond anything in our normal intuition and understanding. And similarly, the idea of some self-existent, self-creating or causeless thing is also something beyond our intuition because with our own everyday familiarity with physical objects, we can always trace back how that thing came to be by looking mm -hmm. at some earlier cause. Right, right. So it's, uh, but I think once you confront that strangeness, that can open your mind and make it more willing to accept uh, at least one of those ideas is true. Like there's that famous quote by Sherlock Holmes, like once you've eliminated uh, all the other possibilities, whatever remains has to be true. So right. I think logically we can narrow down the possibilities either to some self-existent thing or something coming out of nothing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's kind of how I structured my articles to dive down both of those paths and see see where they lead. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, what really fascinated was how you define nothingness. Because when you're approaching some a uh, question, something like you know, such as why is there something rather than nothing, I think we have to define what something is or what nothing is. 
And I, I read an article about how you defined uh, nothingness uh, in uh, in the field of mathematics, physics, computer science, information theory. Um, so yeah, w- would you like to um, would you like to elaborate on that? Sure. There's uh, so the way I, I like to describe this is that nothingness is in a sense theory dependent. So in any theory that you operate in either in math or physics, that theory will have its own definition of what nothing is in that theory. So if you start in physics and you say, well, nothingness is the vacuum, it's no energy, it's the the ground state. Um, Well, then in in a physical theory, nothing is the vacuum. Mm -hmm. But the vacuum in physics isn't a true, what some people have called a philosopher's nothing. Right, there's right. still dimensionality, there are virtual particles, there's uh, fields and forces and laws, even if there's nothing to be governed by those laws, all those yes. are inherent in the vacuum of physics. So you can say, well, can we do any better if we remove the dimensionality of the vacuum, if we remove the laws, the physical laws from the vacuum? And if you keep going down those steps, you might say, well, I end up with maybe not physics, but maybe it's something in geometry. Uh, like in, in geometry, there's a, a 3D space, which is a volume, a 2D space, which is a plane, a one dimensional space is a line. And if you keep deleting dimensions, eventually the smallest thing you're left with in geometry is just a point, which is kind of as close to nothing as you can get in geometry. Yeah, yeah. But, so in, in physics, nothing is the vacuum. In geometry, nothing's a point. But then you can look at other theories in math, like set theory, where nothing is what's called the empty set. It's the set of that contains no elements. Mm-hmm. And there are other mathematical theories not based on sets, but just based on ordinal natural numbers. So you can say, well, nothing is zero magnitude, which we know is the number zero. Mm-hmm. So for each of the, these possible theories, in, in my view, there are an infinite number of theory, theoretical systems you could develop. Each one will have its own notion of nothing. So yeah. we have to be very careful when we say nothing, what exactly we mean and what theory are we operating in. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, when, you, when you're trying to deal, uh, deal with this question, I think we have to understand that nothing, um, nothing isn't just no physical object or no idea. Nothing is literally nothing, right? Just I think I think it's it's the best if you try to define nothing as the absence of something, the absence of anything. So I think so. Uh, recently, I read this article on how how we can kind of represent the idea of nothingness. So in mathematics, I mean, the first thing you would probably think of is like zero, but is zero really nothing? Because I mean, what's zero? Well, zero is, its magnitude is nothing, well, quote unquote, nothing, but it could be composed of other numbers like zero equals one minus one or two minus two. So can mm-hmm. you say the addition of some number and its opposite is nothing or is it still something? Right. That's a, a great question. And I tried to go down that path because in, in almost any definition of nothing, zero comes into play so for example in geometry 
you would have zero dimensionality. In physics, you would have zero energy. So in almost every definition of nothing, you zero plays some prominent role in defining that nothing. But then we can ask, well, what is zero as, a, uh, as an abstract entity? Can we really say that nothing exists if zero exists? Because zero might seem simple, but in fact, it has an infinite number of properties, mm. many of which existing mathematicians are still trying to figure out. And we've only scratched the surface of evolved zero's properties. Our observable universe, even though it has so many uh, billions of galaxies, even if we were to convert all that matter and energy into paper and pencils, we couldn't write down all the properties of zero because zero is this uh, object of uh, infinite complexity. So just to give a taste of that, you, you alluded to it where you said uh, zero is one minus one or two minus two or three minus three. It has all those very trivial properties, but you can also say, well, zero is even or it's the additive identity, or you can say it's um, the number of even primes greater than two. Right. Like almost every mathematical statement, you could reframe as some property of zero. Mm -hmm. And there are many unanswered questions in mathematics. So therefore, zero even has many infinitely many unknown properties that we're mm. still trying to figure out. So while we can delete what we might regard as material things, the question that arises in my mind is, can we delete these properties? Or are properties and truths in other numbers inherent and kind of undeletable in any conceptual, in any conception of reality we might have? Can we really get rid of zero? Can we get rid of the fact that zero is even because mm -hmm. you could say zero things exist but you could also say an even number of things exist mm -hmm. because zero is even so there are these truths that are always going to be there no matter how you try to define reality and if we try to let's say get rid of physical law can we really get rid of all laws because what law prevents nothing from spontaneously decaying into something. You need to have some law that at least says mm. nothing exists and nothing yeah. will continue to remain nothing. So is that an example of the physical law, at least a law that governs that nothingness reality? So nothing is just a, a very complex and subject and it's very difficult to get down to a pure philosopher's nothing one having yeah. no laws no relations no properties no abstract entities it's it almost seems impossible in my view to really uh achieve that type of nothingness mm. yeah interesting so could so i mean when you're trying to define nothingness i think well my intuition tells me that it shouldn't have any properties right but when it comes to like zero you know, it, it has literally an infinite amount of properties. So can we find something that's not just like quantitatively zero, but also has no property at all? I think the closest theory that really approaches that idea of no properties is 
perhaps information theory for the notion of nothing is no information. So if you have no information, then you might say uh, there's no possible room for any of these properties or abstract entities exist because those would constitute some amount of information. But there's also a fairly recent discovery coming from information theory, which finds an identity or equality between zero information and all possible information, which some scientists have used as kind of the basis of. All right. So sorry um, to our listeners and viewers. We had a slight technical difficulty with uh, Zoom. I mean, I'm sure we're all very aware of, you know, all the complications that come with um, Zoom and video communication, you know, as we've lived through the pandemic. But um, why don't we just get started right back where we left off? Um, information the, theory? Yeah, information theory. Go ahead, Jason. So I think of all the theoretical systems for defining nothing, I think information theory perhaps gets us closest to the philosopher's nothing. Mm -hmm. In in information theory, nothing is the empty string. You can view it as like a, a zero length string of information. Right. You could also say it's zero bits of information. Mm. And the reason I think this may get the closest to nothing is it avoids invoking any uh, mathematical properties. Although even here, it's it's hard to get away from zero because if you say the length of the string is zero, well, now you've kind of snuck in <laughs> zero hmm. and all the infinite right. properties. And right. This is why it's so difficult. Um, hmm. And even though it's the closest in my view, I still don't think it quite meets the cut of a philosopher's nothing, which right. Wheeler defined as having neither structure nor law nor plan. And mm -hmm. in my view, even the philosopher's nothing requires at least some types of laws in order to maintain the fact that it stays nothing. So you need some form of consistency property right. of that nothing. So you can get close very close to nothing, but I don't think you can get an absolute nothing which has no properties or laws or structure. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, um, uh, this might be skipping ahead a little bit, but you know, is that do you think like that is the primary or uh, re reason for why you know something exists or everything that we have exists? I'm not sure if it's a reason, but it at least serves as a way of explaining to human intuition why it may not be so crazy that there are self-existent things. For example, the number zero and its properties. That, in my view, is of all the things that you could say are plausibly self-existent, I think the number zero, in my view, is at least no one's pointed to something and shown me anything which to my intuition can I can more readily accept as plausibly being self-existent. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about universes or gods being self-existent, well, those are really huge things with all types of 
billions or trillions or even larger numbers of properties and forces and dynamism, but something simple like the fact that two plus two equals four, I can see that as being true even if there were no universe. And I know that's a contentious statement, not everyone agrees with that, but if there is something that's self-existent, I think things like mathematical truths and properties, um, I can see and accept an argument for those things being mm -hmm. self-existent. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Because I know we had a, uh, me and Devin actually were having a conversation on, could logic be uh, self-existent? and mm -hmm. We were also asking, is it so if if logic is or if logic is a self-existent thing, then does the logic that we have right now must exist, or could it be something else? or could could, you know, could pi not be approximately three point one four? Could it have been something else? It's an excellent question because um, Mathematicians thought for over 2,000 years that the sum of all the angles of a triangle always equal 180 degrees. No matter how you draw the triangle, that always seems to be true. But just in the past century, mathematicians discovered, or it might be more recent, but within the past few hundred years, let's say, mathematicians discovered hyperbolic forms of geometry where that's not always true. So for example, if you draw a triangle on the surface of a sphere and you sum up the angles, well, those won't add up to 180 degrees. And you could also say, well, there are only five known platonic solids, but that's because we're operating in three-dimensional space. If you go to a higher dimensional space, I, I believe there are other types of platonic solids that you can create. So when we talk about things like pi, we're assuming kind of our standard Euclidean three-dimensional geometry that we're familiar with. And it's conceivable that there may be other geometries where pi has some other value. But if you lock down the definitions to say, well, we're talking about a Euclidean space of flat geometry, three dimensions, like the kind that we're familiar with, then I think pi emerges inherently from those definitions. And I think it's inevitable that if you start with those definitions, you end up with pi as being 3.14159 and hmm. so on. Um, as far as logical laws, that's a, so when we talk about the existence of laws, one, one thing you always run into is Laws are kind of abstract. For example, we know that if we drop a rock in a gravitational field, it falls down. And we can say, well, it fell down due to the law of gravity. But you could ask, does the law of gravity really exist as a thing? Or is it just our way of compressing our observations about the reality we find ourselves in? Is it something that exists in itself? Or is it just the fact that rocks happen to fall? Um, so it, you can get into arguments where you say, well, laws, physical laws exist as their own thing, or you could, someone else could argue physical laws are just humanity's description of 
the world around us. And I think you can do the same thing with logical laws. It, it does seem that in, at least in any reality I can conceive, you have the, the, those three basic logical laws, the law of non-contradiction, which is something can't be both true and false at the same time. That seems to be, in my mind, something you can't really escape from. The law of identity that says like, for any X, X equals X. And then the law of excluded middle, which is for any well-formed statement, it's either true or false. There's no like in between, between true and false. So the question I would ask is, is it the case that in any conceivable reality, those three logical laws apply? And then that would lead you to a second question is, if those logical laws apply in any conceivable reality, can you say that those logical laws exist? So there's kind of a two-step uh, process to that question, but at least some people I think can make an argument to say logical laws exist in any conceivable reality, even a reality of no physical things. So that again leads back to, can we really remove everything from reality or will we, we still have these little things hanging around like logical laws or properties of zero? Um, that's very interesting, but my question is, what do you mean by, uh, how do laws exist? Because I used to think that mathematical properties and mathematical laws existed in the platonic world, right? In some world that we cannot see. But for now, I'm not sure if if that's the case because you know something trivial as like if a equals c and b equals c then a has to equal b i mean that statement is true or at least by our intuition but mm -hmm. does some law have to exist or exist physically or exist in the platonic world for, for that law to be true or is that true because we just happen to deal with this um you know mathematical game or this logical game and our kind of minds sort of allow us to kind of kind of understand and comprehend this question or uh, this theory mm -hmm. yeah and philosophers had been debating that question for thousands of years um it kind of splits there's the sole philosophy of mathematics which asks is math invented or is it discovered are we learning objective facts about some mathematical realm or are we just playing games manipulating symbols according to established rules and i would say before the 20th century each of those camps if people were on equal footing you could argue it either way all day but there's a discovery in 1931 by a kurtz girdle which um, through his incompleteness theorems proved that no matter what system of mathematical rules humans come up with to operate in, there are always going to be things that are true but aren't derivable or provable within that system of rules. So to me, this suggests math is more than simply a human invention. And Kurt Gödel came to the same conclusion, which is that if there are these truths and properties that aren't derivable from our system of rules, 
well then in what sense do they exist? They aren't our creations if there are things that exist beyond uh, what can be extrapolated from the system of rules that we come up with. Mm -hmm. And to me, this slightly tilts then towards the favor of the, the so-called Platonists or the mathematical realists, those who say mathematical truths are something beyond the system of rules that human mathematicians come up with. And I think the, the great insight of Gödel's discovery is that no matter how many times we revise or extend our mathematical theories, we'll, we can never capture all mathematical truth. There's always going to be hmm. some greater truths beyond that system we come up with. So it almost sets us on this kind of infinite journey of discovery that's never ending. Hmm. Yeah, that's a uh, it's an interesting um, point that you bring up. I mean, we've we've talked about this question of you know whether math was invented or discovered um, by ourselves and with a number of guests as well. But um, I mean, I don't. We've we've never really referenced that um, that insight that you just talked about, and I think that is very very compelling evidence for the uh, uh, fundamentality of math beyond um, you know just simple human understanding or, um, um, you know, anything that we can necessarily fathom or calculate with. Um, and yeah, that it, it brings up, um, you know, this, this point of, you know, like there's, there's, there's obviously stuff that, uh, you know, uh, governs how we work that we can't necessarily see, but we can observe. And so, um, you know, in what sense um, are those things real, you know, because they're, I mean, are they, can you say that they're physical, um, right? You know, I mean, uh, I guess like, you know, we could always characterize them with symbols and stuff and make them, uh, you know, I guess embody them, you know, in our, in our eyes or something like that. But um, it's not like, you know, they're, they're, uh specifically drawn out right before us right you know especially when when you get to uh much more complex things in mathematics and physics it's like you you need uh you know some level of um math and i mean math is in like uh you know characterizing with symbols and um you know deriving using all sorts of that stuff um to i guess come to a, a single idea of what this uh this law really is, um, you know, in, in like an equation form or, or something like that. Um, and so, you know, in, I guess my question is like, you know, in, in what sense do those things exist? Yeah, a, a lot of people have, they make the argument that, well, all these mathematical objects, these are just abstract things and they have no bearing on us in the physical world or what we can, can do. But I must, see it as the opposite way. I'd say mathematical law is kind of a super law that constrains what's possible in physical universes. For example, you could say, well, I have this pencil and paper, I can move this pencil on this paper any way I want, that's physically allowed. But you could go a little bit further and say, 
principle know that things that you can physically do with that pencil and paper aren't only constrained by physical law, they're also constrained by mathematical law. For example, you could say it's impossible for me to move my pen over this paper in a way that will write down a valid proof that three equals seven. Hmm. So there's no valid proof that three equals seven. Therefore, I'm not only physically constrained, but I'm mathematically constrained in the types of patterns I can express with this pen and paper. Yeah. Hmm. So in that way, mathematical law does kind of limit and affect the things that we can do in this physical universe. Hmm. And I like to view kind of, uh, so computer simulation, I like to view as almost a window or telescope that allows us into to see into other right. possible abstract universes or mathematical objects. Mm -hmm. And are, are you guys familiar with the game of life? It's uh, like a 2D grid that's yeah. governed by very simple rules and you can see all types of patterns evolve. Yeah. So I like to view that game of life as kind of a, a very primitive type of physical reality, one that we can peer into and watch and observe. And we can discover all kinds of things like gliders and flyers and devices that produce gliders, glider guns, and shoot out an infinite stream of gliders. Um, so we can say, or we can ask the question, how is it that we can observe these objects and how does information from this alternate physical reality enter our own end up as patterns on screens that we can see? Is it, are we strictly, strictly limited to the physics of our universe when we're simulating these other mathematical objects? Or are we using our computers as gateways to access these other realities and make mm -hmm. our universe, make something in our universe, our computers for a while, for a while re-implements the properties and behaviors of these extra physical objects. So in that sense, you can say, well, the existence of gliders is some high-level mathematical abstraction that has no effect on us or our universe. But the fact that I can program a computer to simulate the game of life universe and I can look at it and I can see these objects and those objects are having physical effects on my monitor and the patterns of light that are entering my eyes right. and causing me to come up with names like glider guns. Yeah. Well, are we really so separated between our physical concrete reality and these other abstract realities, or are there bridges into them and ways to access and see them? Like mathematicians have long wondered, how does mathematical truth enter our universe, like through the minds of mathematicians? And I think the way that happens is mathematicians are using their minds to simulate these mathematical objects, just like our computers can simulate the game of life universe or fractal and produce a complicated image on our screen. I think mathematicians have for a long time been using their minds to simulate properties of triangles and circles and prime numbers and so forth, and then deriving information, which then they can write down in our, in our universe. So in that sense, the, these abstract objects are affecting our physical universe. Like open any math book and look at the proofs of, let's say the Pythagorean theorem, 
how is it that that proof ended up the way it did? Is it because of the physics of atoms or is it because of the properties of triangles? And it's a, a very deep question, perhaps a whole other topic for a video, but that's how I see is the relationship between abstract and concrete, I think what people call abstract and concrete is really a matter of perspective because you could say well let's say we're in a multiverse and there's universe a in which all three of us are in and then there's universe b which is causally disconnected from universe a mm -hmm. so you Devin, luke and jason we can all look at this universe b and say well that's a completely abstract entity it has no bearing on us mm -hmm. and but conversely, there might be living beings in that universe B and they look at universe A and they say, well, that's just an abstract object. Nothing really happens in there. Even though they can look at patterns of life changing over time and hosting podcasts and having discussions, from their point of view, it's abstract. But that's only because they're in universe B. For those of us in universe A, we of course perceive universe A as existing concretely. Hmm. And then those in universe B, they believe universe B is concrete and we're abstract. So really it's it's all a matter of perspective and right. yeah. how that abstract object bears on your perceptions and reality. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We uh this is a very good point, Jason. I mean, uh yeah, I don't I yeah, I mean, just seeing Luke's reaction. We we you know, we've never really gotten this far so it's, it's great to get your your thoughts on stuff like this but yeah, i mean perspective is is really everything you know we should do a, another in-depth episode on perspective but um yeah i think i think um you know it's 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 important always to you know really acknowledge um how limited our perspective might be you know, and how, um, well, obviously, uh, you know, we, we might be the most intelligent things that we know of, but we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves because uh, there could be something that perceives more than we do and understands it in different ways and better ways than we do, you know. So, uh, yeah, intellectual, I guess, humility is, is very, very important, um, definitely for philosophy as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, we, we experience this as just living beings and that every day we're as old as we've ever been. So mm. you might say, well, we're, we're as experienced as we've ever remembered being. Sure. But every day we're also the youngest we'll ever be from that point forward. Mm. You can view at the progression of humanity, like our perspective, you might say, well, we're the most advanced and technologically capable humans that have ever existed but we've only existed let's say a few hundred thousand years but if we look out into the future we can see possible futures billions or trillions of years long so are we really at the pinnacle or are we just at the first mm -hmm. steps of journey and right. yeah very interesting um can you view possibility as a self-existent material or not a material but a thing so 
there have been there's been a long tradition of people that have used possibility as an explanation for existence. Um, Leibniz, for example, said everything that is possible has kind of a, a drive to become actual. And there's been a number of philosophers like David Lewis's modal realism, which says everything is po that's possible is actual somewhere. Mm -hmm. and Max Tegmark, um, his idea of mathematical universe is essentially that every Every mathematical object that is possible exists physically as some actualization of that mathematical object. And I do find that very alluring as an idea. I would say I actually came into, well, to, um, <clears throat> I think my story kind of parallels Devon's when he was saying how he had this epiphany when he was much younger, just realizing, well, it's so strange that something exists. Why does anything exist? I had kind of that same thought process. And I didn't yeah. come up with a satisfying, I didn't find a satisfying answer until I was first exposed to some of the, the ideas of Max Tegmark, which was this whole mathematical universe hypothesis, the idea that anything that is possible there's no law preventing it from existing. So why don't we just accept that it exists? And therefore every conceivable universe in reality, like our, our entire physical universe is just one particular object and in infinite set of mathematical objects that are possible. So are we really in a position to deny other possible universes exist just because we can't see them? We have no, evidence for them, but we also have no evidence against them. So I do think consider, starting off with possibility is a good kind of uh, pry bar to understanding why things might happen to exist. Yeah. Because there's, if you say they're possible, well, nothing forbids them. So maybe that's all you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, thinking about that, it's, I'm a little bit conflicted, you know, because I mean, maybe this is just my, uh, once again, like humanistic pr perspective, limited uh, understanding of how things work. But I still there's still something in me that, you know, I guess kind of finds it hard to believe that um, everything that is necessarily possible um, will exist somewhere. And I guess um, logically, I can sort of see both ways but it's just intuitively you know it's just like well i mean how can a perfect circle exist right i mean it's because uh, from my understanding at least you know there's nothing that's exactly perfect um you know in reality so um i don't know maybe i just need to adjust my intuition a little bit and recalibrate but um stuff like that is uh i guess it's pretty jarring for me Mm -hmm. And in my article, I kind of uh, echo that sentiment because I arrange all these possible answers for why does anything exist in this table. And one thing that stood out is there are answers to that question that seem very plausible as being self-existing objects, 
but then it seems very unplausible that those could explain the reality that we see. And conversely, there are things that can readily explain the reality that we see, like the universe itself or consciousness itself, but then those don't seem to be necessarily self-existent, or at least we don't readily see the reason they should be self-existent. Hmm. And then I put possibility kind of in the middle because you can kind of see how possibility leads to the universe we see, but then you can also wonder like, what actually is the driver that makes that possibility in actuality? Sure. There's kind of room for doubt on each of those. So where I ultimately think is the, the most, the, the best answer to that question is, would be if there's something that was readily obvious as something that could be self-existent, but then also to show the steps of how that self-existent thing can lead to the type of reality and universe that we observe. And that would be kind of the, the perfect answer because it'd give you an answer for why something exists and it would also tie it into our observed reality. And you could see the whole um, answer kind of constructively explained step-by-step. Step. Well, yes, two plus two equals four. And yes, there's no reason we need to assume anything else beyond just the that they're self-existent truths. And if we can start there and go step-by-step step up to explaining a huge universe that's governed by simple mathematical laws, which evolves in time, which is subject to quantum mechanics, if we can explain all those things starting from something as trivial as two plus two equals four, then uh, I think that would be a, a satisfying answer for many people. And that's, what I attempt to draw out um, through my article. So to start with something that is as close to, um, at least which can be readily accepted as self-existent and then show constructively how that leads to the kind of universe with the properties that our universe has. And, mm. and I think it's only through the work of some very recent um, scientists and mathematicians and cosmologists that we've gotten to this stage where we can now make that bridge between a self-existent thing which can also stand as the cause for what we observe we actually had an episode on whether if mathematical empirical truths are actually just logical truths because when you said like, you know, two plus two equals four, it's not that two plus two equals four because some law exists. It's that like, you know, three is uh, defined as one, something that's one greater than two and four is something that's defined as one greater than three. So two plus two has to equal four. So in that way, would you, could you say that mathematical laws weren't quote unquote engineered, but they kind of have to emerge. I mean, some properties like, you know, one minus one third plus one fifth minus one seventh somehow converges to pi over four. But in some way, those patterns and those identities kind of have to happen by its logic. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think once you define the, so in any mathematical theory, you have what are called axioms, which are the kind of barest assumptions which are supposed to be uh, self-evidently true. I think for many systems of axioms, 
if you assume those as true, lead to this kind of infinite flourishing of consequences, which include the fact that this series of one over three minus uh, one over five and just repeated indefinitely leads to some convergence of uh, pi over four, or whatever it happened to be. Those all stem, I believe like each step in a proof, you use logic to show why it has to be that way. And I do think it's in a sense logically necessary that those consequences follow once you assume those partic particular axioms. Hmm. Do you have anything to say? Um, no, I mean, um, I guess, I guess, you know, it's just because of the nature of, you know, proofs and uh, I guess what, what mathematics is, I think the question that you're asking, Luke, is, you know, are these things like, do they have to exist? I mean, I think so, you know, um, just because of, you know, logic. And uh, I don't know, maybe we could get into the question of, is this the only system of logic that works or something like that, or, you know. Um, but at least, you know, in this given universe with this given set of logic that, uh, you know, it has to be true. So, yeah. Interesting. You, uh, uh, your description of that reminded me of a recent work by Stephen Wolfram on what he calls the Ruliad, R-U-L-I-A-D. Mm -hmm. His idea is if you take all possible rule-based systems and basically every possible permutation of rules and logic, he, he's attempting to derive physics in our physical universe, basically starting from the idea that every possible rule system that's conceivable exists. So that kind of escapes the idea of, well, do we have to start with this particular logic? Is this the only possible logic? Yeah. He does away with that assumption and just says, well, let's consider what do we get if we consider all possible logical rule-based systems? Right. Where does that lead? I think that's, that's part of a general trend of science and scientific theories on this question of existence. They all seem to be The trend in my view is as our theories get simpler and simpler with fewer and fewer assumptions, right. the reality implied by that system grows larger and larger. So mm -hmm. you would say, well, in the days of, of Newton, we had to assume not only physical laws, but every particle having its own direction and speed and so forth. And you'd say, well, we need a huge amount of data to specify the universe because you have to specify every possible particle and where it is and what it's doing. Mm -hmm. And then in the past century with different multiverse theories, we've gone from saying, well, no, you don't actually need to describe every possible particle and every possible particle position. Because if you just say, well, these are the physical laws and every possible permutation of particles and positions and velocities exist somewhere as some part of the multiverse, you've greatly simplified your 
the size of your description of reality because now you don't need to describe where every atom is. You just need to describe the laws that govern how they behave. But now you have this gigantic multiverse of every possible combination of where particles, particles might be and how they might be moving. But then you still have things like the mass of the electron or the strength of the electromagnetic force and all these other physical constants. And then a more recent trend in string theory is to say, well, maybe those aren't constant. Maybe those are just particular happenstances. Hmm. So then you can sim simplify your theory further and you say, well, these aren't constants. These are variables and there can be other string theory universes where maybe the electron is heavier than it is in our universe. So again, you've simplified your laws, but now you have this gigantic string theory landscape of very, very different types of physical universes where there may be different particles, different forces, different strengths of forces. And then you can go further and say, well, what if you allow different types of equations, not just the equations of string theory, but maybe any conceivable um, system of physical equations. And then again, you've now magnified your reality to what may be as large as all mathematical objects, but you've made the theory now extremely simple where you just say anything goes. So the simpler theories get, the larger the scope of what possibly exists. And I think this trend of science has been going basically since uh, possibly even thousands of years ago. That's, you could say, well, our earliest theories, which just that the sun is, one type of object and the stars were something else. But then we realized stars were other suns and we greatly expanded our, we simplified the theory by saying stars are just other suns yeah. that are far away. But now we've made our reality so much bigger. Hmm. And for example, only in the 1920s do we actually discover there are other galaxies. Before that, we thought what looked like other galaxies, astronomers used to think were just gas clouds inside our own galaxy. Hmm. And it's only when we built much larger telescopes and were able to tell that these objects are moving away from us much faster than they could be if they were objects inside our galaxy. Only then did we realize these gas clouds were actually other entire galaxies. So every time we simplify our theory, we expand uh, our conception of reality. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is a very, interesting trend um yeah do those oh go ahead go ahead so do those specific physical laws and constants possibly you know imply something like fine-tuning like is consciousness or is life fundamental in the universe i think it's fundamental in the sense of uh it being a universe that is experienced as a universe so you could say well there are these dead dead mathematical objects which behave like universes but they have no conscious life in them and therefore they're abstract objects from every possible perspective if you're willing to say well those universes are of a fundamentally different kind than our universe i think then you can say life is inevitable in any abstract object that is perceived as a concrete object but if you're willing to put dead universes and life-filled universes on kind of an equal footing, I think then you can say, well, life isn't inevitable. 
unlimited numbers of universes. Some have life, some don't. Yeah. Life only experiences itself existing in those universes where life is possible. And therefore, uh, that explains this mystery of fine tuning, why all the physical laws and forces seem to be just right in order to allow life and complexity and persistent storage of information to exist. Because all those things are really required for there to be life of any kind. Things can't be too chaotic because then you can't store patterns long-term. Things also can't be too simple and sterile, otherwise you don't have the complexity you need to drive uh, life and evolution and um, be able to arrange matter in all types of complex ways to encode that information. Hmm. Um, so I think one of the most common answers you probably get by asking just a random person, you know, why do you think there's something rather than nothing? I think most people, at least most Americans would say God or some kind of deity. Um, what, what do you think about that argument? Do you think God could be self-existing? I think it's a wonderful question because it really brings together the well, in order to answer fully, you have to say explicitly what you mean by God. So, for example, the conclusion, my article, for why there's something rather than nothing, I trace it to fundamentally this uh, self-existent, uncreated, infinite, incomprehensible, infinite, truth, which is the ground of reality, the container of all minds, the container of all universes. Um, when you frame it in that light, you see it as almost this omniscient mind, something which contains all possible truths, all knowledge, all realities. And some, you trace it back to something which is uncreated, it's uh, infinite, it's, it can't be comprehended by any finite being you see all these types of parallels with properties that have traditionally been ascribed to God as being self-existent, infinite, um, incomprehensible, the source, the ground of being. Um, so it's, it's very interesting in that the answer we arrive at through pure rational consideration of evidence and facts and scientific theories has led us to something which has all these parallels with these religious conceptions of what God happens to be. And it's not just Judeo-Christian versions of God. You can also look in Hinduism, which describes Brahman as this infinite uh, ground of all reality. And then there are religions and for example, uh, that say, God is truth. Actually, Gandhi himself said, if he were to give the fullest, most accurate description of what God is, he would have to say God is truth. Um, and then that's very similar to this idea that infinite self-existent truth is kind of the grounding of reality, which is what all these theories have, have led me to accept as possibly the most uh, plausible answer. At least that's 
humanity has so far. Hmm. So when you get to ideas of God and does God exist or doesn't he, I think you need to take a step back and say, what would qualify as God in your theory or how do you define God? And until you can answer those questions, I think to try to answer whether God exists or doesn't is somewhat premature because everyone is going to have their own conceptions and ideas about what God is. Hmm. So let's say as a precondition, you need to list what would, what would you consider as God? Hmm. Right. I mean, I think the most common idea of God would be someone who's like omniscient and omnipotent and, you know, morally superior, but, um, for me, I'm not sure. Cause I mean, everything kind of happens for a reason, for some reason. And I think if you go back and if you say, what's the cause of what's, what's the ultimate cause of everything, then I think there has to be, um, and I think Leibniz said this, about like you know the theory of like the unmoved mover um mm -hmm. that, that has to be god and I'm, I'm i'm being personally i'm not very convinced that you know god always has to be someone who's omniscient omnipotent and omni good but uh i i kind of do um i, I am a little i'm not convinced but I, I do find the theory of some unmoved mover existing somewhat interesting yeah, I think if you are convinced that either nothing is impossible or that something can't come out of nothing, then going back to our earlier discussion, there are kind of only two possible answers. So if you reject nothing as the starting point, the only alternative then is to start with some self-existent thing. And that may be the most if you were to look across all possible religions as to what they see as some property of God, I think self-existence would rank highly as one of the most broadly accepted properties. And whether or not just by virtue of being self-existent, that's enough to call it God, or does it have to have these other attributes of omnipotence or omnibenevolence? It's more of a debate for um, comparative religion or between theologians but i do think that is it's a good starting points for understanding that there may not be this unbridgeable rift between science and religion it may be that science is a tool that we can use to enhance not only our day-to-day -day beliefs but maybe our our spiritual beliefs or our understanding of what exists beyond this universe and and so forth things which are normally considered religious religious uh, ideas for example is there a soul is there life after death like often people say well these are just religious ideas science has nothing to offer on them but in many of my articles i show quite clearly scientific theories are far from silent on having implications of these ideas of whether or not uh, there could be life after death. For example, just to give a very simple example, the leading theory of what's caused the Big Bang is this theory of cosmic inflation. And cosmic inflation predicts there's not just one Big Bang, but 
there will be this perpetual never-ending cycle of an infinite number of big bangs on into the future. And if you say, well, there, there's this infinite never-ending succession of big bangs, you could say, well, in one of them, eventually you'll get to the point where all of history is going to be played out exactly as it has played out here in this universe. So isn't that a way of kind of scientifically establishing you will live again in one of these future big bangs that may happen untold eons from now, but is an inevitable consequence of this scientific theory. So that, that's just one example. There, there are many other scientific theories that have all these implications that tread on what are normally considered religious ideas. Right. So I think Freeman Dyson, he was a scientist that said, our scientific and our religious understanding are both at just the very beginning, we're only scratching the surface. And that both of these domains should continue to develop over thousands of years in their sophistication and understanding. And, and I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in that type of view, just maintaining that humility, hmm. uh, not saying that God doesn't exist or afterlifes don't exist, because really science doesn't provide evidence against sure. Those ideas, our, our perspective is too limited to really say what does or doesn't exist across reality, which may be infinite and unlimited. And if reality is infinite and unlimited, then the only things that don't exist are those that are logically self inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a thing that, uh, or an idea that rings true for both me and Luke. And, um, I mean, not to get too far into our, I guess, religious or spiritual beliefs, but um, the humility that you talk about definitely, uh, you know, is is uh, pretty, I guess, um, you know, it's fundamental in our character and how we sort of go about things and think about the world. And, um, you know, I, I think that sort of that um, mindset of, you know, you just, you just, uh, you know, when there's uncertainty, you can't really make uh, a, a certain conclusions um, about things, you know, so you don't necessarily swing one side to saying there is no God or there is no, like, or religion is, uh, you know, it's not useful or it doesn't make sense or something like that, or going the other way or saying um, there 100% has to be a God and that's the only way that things can be and it has to be this specific God or something like that. You know, it's, it's, um, I think, uh, you know, seeing things from, I guess you could say like the outside or just, you know, looking at both sides or, um, you know, existing in the in-between of those ideas and taking, um, you know, the, the feedback from both sides, you know, and helping, that are using that to help uh i guess uh construct your worldview or um your uh you know influence how you act and um how you think about things is really really valuable and um uh one thing that uh um we kind of that you kind of talked about um that i thought was really interesting is um uh the gandhi quote it was like what was it? uh god is truth something like that mm -hmm. right um and I think this is a very interesting idea that um, 
uh, I kind of thought of in the past is how a lot of us can sort of, or at least there's there's a lot of parallels between, um, I guess, uh, faith or worship or religion and, um, you know, I guess passions. I don't know. Like, you know, um, like me and Luke, Luke are both, uh, you know, we're passionate about math and science and philosophy too. And we, we sort of, you know, like it's, it's, you know, it's very, very, very instrumental to um, our personalities. Right. And, you know, we, we practice it a lot. We, uh, um, you know, it's, it gives us a lot of joy. Um, it gives us a lot of hope, a lot of faith. And, you know, it's, it's very similar to, um, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who follow ver uh, various religions strictly, you know, and they, um, they get a lot of the same benefits, right? And so um, this is also sort of a thing where it's like you, um, I feel like there, I don't know, maybe there might be a lot of people out there who, um, I guess, worship in some sort, in some sort of way, some sense, um, an idea or um, you know, something like, uh, something like math or something, you know, that isn't necessarily thought of as a religion or, um, you know, something like that, but, um, they go about or they approach it in the same way as a religious person would with their religion, you know? And so, um, having the idea of, you know, like, or just expanding your idea of what worship really means and what it is um i think it's important and maybe overlooked i completely agree um because i mean i i grew up pretty religious and i thought you know when i discovered i, I mean i wouldn't say i'm an atheist i'm more of an agnostic but you know when i kind of you know walked away from the idea of the traditional faith and discovered the idea of like mathematics and truth and stuff like that i you know i thought i was kind of free from what you said like worshiping and faith and stuff like that but you know i recently realized that you can never kind of completely walk away from the idea of faith and it doesn't have to be what you said like the traditional god or traditional religion slash worshiping um i think all of us we kind of have some sort of um some kind of an idea of something like god or something like that we chase right mm -hmm. so yeah I, I think you brought up a great point yeah I I echo uh, many of those sentiments, and I think a lot of people, when they try to escape religion, end up, in a way, creating their own hmm. type of religion. Or they may not call it a religion, but let's just say a system of beliefs about fundamental reality. Everyone has those beliefs, whether it's the atheist saying, well, the Big Bang just happens. Life is an accident. That's where it happened to be. That's also a uh, a belief system, which may or may not be true. They accept it's kind of on faith. I mean, they do use some observational evidence. However, you may not they may not know is was the Big Bang really an accident? Was it inevitable, um, or so forth? But we as living beings kind of need a system of beliefs just to operate in the world. And 
we never achieve truth or knowledge of the truth. It's always something that we chase after, never quite reach. But on that basis alone, that means that there are always going to have to be things we accept without complete evidence and therefore have to make some, some leap of faith to operate our lives according to those assumed ideas. Hmm. And I'm not sure where, where it's quite going with this, but uh, it's kind of how I see things that whether we call it religion or not, we all have our assumed beliefs right. about how the world is and how it operates and how we think it should operate. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Jason, I want to talk more about the three modes of existence, math, matter, and mind. And I, I found that super fascinating. And uh, we were actually discussing whether uh, if or whether math and matter are actually the same thing or, or matter and mind or whatever. Um, what do you think about that? Uh, to be clear, do you want to discuss the matter and math or the mind and matter first? For now, I would say uh, math and matter. Okay. So where I see those as very much overlapping is that in a manner of speaking, math is a language that's sufficiently general and powerful that it can describe almost anything we encounter, including the physical universe. And at some level, we have to ask ourselves if let's say there are two hypotheses, one is we live in a mathematical uh, universe or two, we live in a physical universe. At what point do those two theories lead to different testable predictions? If in every possible way, there's no, I mean, in every possible scenario, there's no way to distinguish between those two possibilities. You have to wonder, well, is there any real difference between those things. Um, like someone famously said, a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Mm. And I think that's the situation we're in when we try to decide, are we living in a mathematical object or in a physical object? Because uh, for any conceivable physical universe, I can imagine there's always going to be some effectively identical mathematical object that mimics all the behaviors and processes of that physical universe. So then I don't see any, not only that we can't resolve between those two hypotheses, but does it even make sense to say those are two different hypotheses? Maybe we should collapse it into one idea and say, well, we live in something that has structure and laws and rules, but we don't, it makes no difference to say it's mathematical structure or a physical structure. It's just a structure and that's all we can really say about it. How do you put mind in, into um, this theory? How, how could mind and matter be the same thing? Um, but say, I don't believe they could be the same thing, but I would say it's an open question as to is it organizations of matter that create minds or is it organization of minds that creates matter? And this 
I'm actually in the process of writing a, an article on consciousness. And this is one of the, the prime debates that's been going on in the field of consciousness since, well, for thousands of years. The debate between materialism and idealism, which is the question of what is more fundamental in reality? Is it consciousness or is it matter? And if you're a materialist, you say matter is the most fundamental thing. Um, but then the question is, well, how do we get consciousness out of matter? Because in consciousness, we have all these properties like redness or sweet or warmth or the taste of chocolate, which have no analogs in any of the physical material. Like there's no taste of chocolate inherent in the mass of a quark or the uh, state of an electron. So how do we get these mental properties out of material organizations? Conversely, if we start from the idea that mind is the most fundamental thing, the theory called idealism, well, then we have the question of why is it that the experiences we have seem to follow uh, a material physical world? Why is it that when we see a rock go up, few moments later we'll see that rock come back down and why is it then when we take certain chemicals into our body that alters our state of consciousness so each of these two theories has its own problem connecting to the other if you start from the mind well then how do you get something that looks like the material world or if you start with the material world how do you get all these unique properties of mind and the resolution to this question, I think, is to propose a third thing which can explain the other two. Hmm. So for example, um, John Wheeler kind of famously brought up the idea of it from bits, like the idea that information plays both a fundamental role in both our consciousness and in the physical world. So could it be that something like information is the glue between consciousness and matter? And you could say, for example, that consciousness is information seen from the inside while matter is information seen from the outside. And if you look at it in that perspective, you can see, well, there's this one thing and we can explain it from two different directions. Maybe there's some uh, plausible way of connecting those two uh, perspectives in a way that's consistent and makes sense. And I think as physical theories have advanced, starting with uh, the quant quantum mechanics, they kind of force physicists to realize the observer has a fundamental role in physics and you can't really just discard the observer and keep your physical laws as you know them. You really have to consider the observer as an ind indispensable component of your physical theory. I think there's, uh, that's just something that scientists have, they, want, they resisted that very strongly, but that they were kind of inevitably forced in that direction just as quantum theory developed. And that's what led Wheeler to his idea of you have this observer participator and you have the system that they're observing and it's some mutually conditioned pair in, uh, really have to consider reality kind of 
from the perspective of that pair existing as, uh, as its own independent thing. Hmm. So it's a, it's a very deep question. What, what is the relation between mind and matter? And, and how, how do they interrelate? And what's more fundamental? And you'll see in my article, there, there have been numerous theories offered on this question. And, and if I were to give you my opinion, I do think computation and information processing may be that glue that unites the two that can explain both why mental properties can be so different from the underlying physical components and simultaneously explain why conscious perceptions seem so tied up with matter and physical law. And I, I briefly touch on this on the Why Does Anything Exist article because I show if you assume consciousness is the result of computation or information processing, and if you assume all possible computations exist, then you can explain all kinds of facts about our universe just from those assumptions. So you can explain why, universe, why our universe has time, why it has simple probabilistic mathematical laws, why quantum mechanics has this fundamental randomness and infinite complexity, why quantum computers work, uh, why information and observation play a fundamental role in our physical theories. So all these things kind of come out for free if you make some very basic assumptions about what consciousness is and what reality is. Um, so if you assume those two things, you can kind of extract from those base assumptions all these other properties about the universe that we find ourselves in, which I think is quite fascinating. Uh, could you tell us more about like uh, the fundamentality of computation and information? Because, I mean, I've always been fascinated by like computer programming, and I'm, I'm not really educated on this topic, obviously, but uh, we were thinking about whether, you know, computation in itself is, is like math. So like when we think of math, we think of something like numbers, but we were talking about how the, the essence of math isn't in numbers, but in, in the uh, operations in the computations, right? So could, could, you know, cause for example, like geometry or topology, I mean, those fields of mathematics, you're not dealing with, or, you know you know, numbers themselves, it's more of like you're dealing with the patterns and the information you can find in different geometrical objects and shapes. So what do you think about that? I think something that computation offers that may not be inherent in many mathematical objects, like, for example, the, let's just think of an object like the platonic sphere. That's just a completely static object. It's doesn't evolve over time. There are no dynamical forces. There are no interdependent relationships that lead to a system of causality. But if you consider instead a computer program, computer program has a sequence of states which evolve over time where the past states determine and affect the future states where there's this dynamism and activity as you progress through the states of the unfolding computation. It has 
large number of analogies between what we consider to be our physical universe. And, and this becomes even clearer when you start thinking about simulations and virtual realities, or even something simple like the game of life universe. We can call that a universe, even though at one level, it's just a system of rules. Once we instantiate that in a computer program, it becomes alive and we see the patterns evolve over time and we see interactions and all kinds of things which we have analogs for in our universe. Like we see a photon be absorbed by an electron and then the electron jump up to some new state and then maybe it falls and emits another photon. Similarly, if you watch a game of life universe, you might see a glider hit an object and cause it to self-destruct or maybe to emit another glider. You can have all, all kinds of different interactions. And what distinguishes the computations of something like the game of life universe from something like platonic solid is that you have this, uh, you have an unlimited potential for realizing different types of relations and behaviors and activities, which normally don't exist in what we nor what normally comes to mind when we think of a mathematical object. So when you think of like a triangle or a sphere or the number two, we just look at those as kind of boring, static, changeless things. But something like a Turing machine or a computer executing uh, the, pro the game of life program, we look at very differently. We see it as this uh, something that's almost analogous to a physical universe in its own right. And I think uh, in order to realize conscious minds and have observers, you need that type of activity and dynamism. You can't just have, like information stored on a hard drive, I would say, isn't alive or conscious. You need some, however, if you have like a robot interacting with its environment and it has an active memory state and it's taking in information from the environment and processing it and using that to direct its behaviors, that I could see as being conscious, whereas ones and zeros sitting on a hard drive, I'd say, aren't conscious. So that's kind of the difference I'd see between computations, which are active, and just static information, which doesn't have any inherent relation between the ones and zeros on the hard drive. Like you could change some of those ones and zeros, that won't affect any of the other ones and zeros on the rest of the hard drive. Whereas if you have a computer program and you flip some ones and zeros around, that's usually going to have drastic effects on how that computation unfolds and operates, and you're going to have all these downstream effects, the changes that you made. Hmm. Do you think by analyzing the the questions of how, you know, the questions of how the mathematical or the physical world works or, or how consciousness works, do you think that could help us get closer to the question of or to the answer of why there's anything at all, why there's something rather than nothing? Oh, definitely. I think, for example, um, when I was giving you the description of how if we make these assumptions about what consciousness is, then we can explain, for example, these different properties of our physical universe. In order to make that leap, you do have to make an assumption about consciousness, which is that consciousness is inherently about information processing and computation. 
if you don't make that assumption, then you can't get to any of the other conclusions about uh, explaining existence or the properties of our physical universe. There, you kind of need to make some leap of faith in either position. So you could say, we can't make advances in our theories of consciousness unless we create some assumptions about why anything exists. That's one way you can approach the problem. But you can also approach it from the other direction and say, we can't really advance our theories of why anything exists unless we first address some open questions about what consciousness is and what's necessary to create consciousness. And that's, that's definitely how I, I see things. So I see based on the success of these particular theories about reality and what exists and how, given that they can explain so much about our physical universe, I would say that can be viewed as strong evidence about some of these competing theories of consciousness. If you say, for example, if I assume consciousness requires atoms and electrons and physical objects exactly as they exist in our universe, and if you try to simulate consciousness on a computer, you can't recreate consciousness no matter how hard you try. That's one theory of consciousness that will give you very different predictions about, um, about reality. Whereas if on the other hand you say, if I simulate the brain in enough detail and with enough precision and fidelity, I will recreate the consciousness, consciousness of that brain, regardless of the material substrate or whether it's an Apple or a PC or Linux computer. If you say none of that matters, all that matters are the behaviors and the relations and recreating all those interactions of the simulated neurons in the same way that the biological neurons work. That's a theory of consciousness known as functionalism, where you say it's it's not what it is, it's how it behaves. Or you could say functionalism is more the idea that the mind is what the brain does. It's not the fact that the brain is made out of these like squishy cells that are squirting ions back and forth between each other that is special to consciousness. It's the fact that the neurons are processing information in these complex ways that is what's necessary to consciousness. If you say it's the information processing that matters and not the material substrates, then that's how you can make the leap to say, well, if computations exist platonically, then there will exist platonic computations that are identical to a full simulation of our entire universe as we know it. And that perfect simulation of the entire universe as we know it will contain Luke and Devin and Jason having this same, the same exact conversation on this podcast. However, if you say you need special material and that the Luke and Devin and Jason on this podcast in this perfect simulation of the universe, while they say all the same things and behave in all the same ways, but if you say they aren't conscious, well then, that's kind of a, a dead end theory as far as explaining why anything exists. But on the other hand, if you're willing to admit, well, that perfect computation that simulates our universe and has a Luke and Devin and Jason having this 
conversation on this podcast, if you are willing to admit, well, maybe they are conscious in the same way as we're conscious in our physical universe. Then you can make the leap to say, well, do we really need a separate physical universe to exist? Or can we just say this computation exists and that's all we need to explain all of our observations? And then we can discard the need for a physical universe and we just say, well, the computations exist. The computations contain conscious entities. That's all we need to explain their conscious perceptions of the physical world. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, once again, Jason, it's just great hearing your perspective on things. Cause I mean, uh, just in the grand scheme, you know, we're relatively new thinkers. Um, you know, just being teenagers to all this stuff. So getting, you know, such high level ideas and uh concepts about this sort of thing is really, really eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh I, I should explain I've I've been deeply investigating these topics for around 15 years now. So um I mean it's a very long journey. It's taken me very long term to develop a long time to develop the understanding that I have developed but uh advantage for you guys now is that you can take all the years of research that that I've done and that others have done that I've referenced into my work and now you can jump start your you can like recreate the 15 years that it took for me to do this research and you can just read an article in a few hours and kind of approach the same uh understanding so with with each generation we're just building a larger and larger, more developed and refined understanding of the universe. And, um, and I see that the new generation is, will be able to soar to even higher heights because you have uh, the advantage of, of taking the life works of all these other people that have come before you. And uh, you can take advantage of the writings of Plato and Aristotle 2000 years ago, and Leibniz 300 years ago, and all the great scientists of the uh, 20th century. And you can read uh, all their thoughts. So every, just as I, I was describing before, we, we've seen wherever we are in time, we always perceive ourselves as kind of being at the pinnacle of the understanding. So, um, but just retain that humility knowing that we're only continuing to carry the torch further to future generations that will come after us. And as long as we continue this march, we'll con continue to advance in our understanding and hopefully for hundreds or thousands or possibly billions of years into the future, we and our descendants will continue this journey. Of course, yeah. I mean, that, that's something that me and Luke talk about. I mean, it's beyond even just the information or the understanding that you've given us and the, uh, you know, the thinkers of the past have given us. It's just, uh, you know, your character, your journey, your passion is inspiring to us, you know. And so um, just, you know, seeing all the work that you've done and the work that everybody's done, it's um, it's motivating, you know, for us to to carry that torch, you know, into the future. I'm sure, Luke, you feel the same. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. Yeah. This is a bit of an unusual question, but uh, 
What do you think would be the social consequences of finding out the answer to this question? So if it, this is probably one of the hardest things to make any kind of prediction on, just because you're always trying to outthink what not only other people, but whole collectives of other people will do. But if people were to internalize these ideas and accept them as true, I do see it as perhaps lessening some of the differences we see between our different ideas. So for example, um, you could imagine all types of like past wars or um, disputes or fights over one person having one conception of God that's slightly different from another person's conception of God. If instead we can use our intellects and rationality to converge on a more common understanding, then maybe that will lessen uh, some of the differences we see in each other and uh, perhaps give humanity more of a shared vision for the reality we find ourselves in because so much of the the room for disagreement in religion, I think, stems from just the, the fact that such an undeveloped or underdeveloped area of human understanding, there's so much room for competing opinions and different ideas and arguments. And I think if, if this understanding were to develop and converge on some towards some understanding and if this understanding became common across humanity, then that could lessen the amount of disagreement and give people more perspective for what reality is and why we happen to be in this reality. And as I described it in, in the beginning of my article, we're kind of like in the same position as someone who wakes up in the middle of the woods and we have no idea how we got here, why we're here, what we're doing, what's the meaning of it all, what's the purpose. And I think if we develop our philosophical thinking on all of these subjects, everyone can be much better grounded. We'll know why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, what's the meaning of it all, what are some of the things that are meaningful to spend one's life on. I think that's the foundation that a lot of people I think are missing either because they, it may be something that people have traditionally relied on religion for, but a lot of people, religion as it's traditionally been practiced has kind of been uh, falling out of favor or people are coming up with their own ideas or they're diverging into different directions just because this space is so underdefined there's so many uh, possible answers but 
if we can converge on a more common answer, then I think that will help a lot of people. Yeah, I I I think that you bring up a great point about you know the uh, I guess the insecurity of not knowing is uh, you know it's been a very dangerous thing for humanity. It's caused a lot of conflict, um, a lot of war, and you know disagreement and stuff like that. And I I definitely agree. You know, if we did have you know some sort of universal understanding of uh, how things work. Um, it would sort out a lot of the um, the feelings of difference or that, uh, or, you know, maybe like superiority or inferiority, stuff like that. And um, it would unlock a, a lot of new possibilities for collaboration or just, um, you know, coexisting. Um, but one thing that I also want to bring up is sort of um, more of like the uh, the detriments that finding out an answer this this big would bring you know because i um i feel somewhat strongly that you know sort of our differences are um valuable you know and they they help uh i guess i guess drive us and um all they also you know help in collaborative settings you know new perspectives are uh or, or uh, a variety of perspectives is you know I feel like um, today, at least, it's it's very valued, you know, in um, in terms of, uh, I guess, business settings or, you know, even like friend groups, stuff like that, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, like. Uh, yeah, well, there's certainly a lot of survival advantage in different people employing different right. life strategies. So. Um, just as a, a simple example, th this is just a very basic example, which I'm sure there are all kinds of problems with, but let's say some religion said, well, there's this particular food we shouldn't eat. And, and you might say, well, it's silly to have that rule. Why does it exist? And you could say, well, um, if there were two populations of humans, one that couldn't eat this food and one that could, well, maybe there's some famine and the people that refuse to eat that food starve. So mm. there's definitely no survival advantage in having that religious uh, prescription. But then on the other hand, well, maybe that food, which you said not to eat, gets contaminated and the people who did eat it all, all die. And then you would say, well, there was a lot of advantage in having that. Mm. Either strategy has its advantages and disadvantages, but humanity as a whole gained a survival advantage just by the fact of having those two different right. strategies. So having different beliefs and strategies and ways for living, even if for the individual may be bad in certain circumstances, the fact that you have a big spectrum of different ways of living makes that species more resilient. So there, there's always a balancing act between having too much common commonality and similarity, which maybe there's less conflict, but now you've lessened your survival advantage or your ability to solve problems. But conversely, if you have too many differences, you can also have more conflict and strife and division. So I don't know what the right balance is or what the optimum 
uh, evolutionary approaches. I'm sure there's probably some game theoretic or mathematical model that will say what the optimum level of similarity and differences for the long-term success of a species. But uh, it's very hard for me to say how to connect kind of the some shared acceptance of a particular philosophical idea and how that relates to long-term consequences of the survival of the human race. It's um, surely there, there are too many variables to really of course. An yeah. Going back to the question of the social consequences, do you think there will be any negative ones? Yeah, um, there, there certainly could be. So to to that previous example, let's say everyone in the world chose to abandon their religion as they know it and accept this um, some new theory of explaining existence. Well, there's certainly no guarantee that this answer is correct. And if 100% of people believe it and they're all wrong, that could uh, potentially lead to problems down the line. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, let's tie back to this theory of consciousness. So this assumes that if we recreate a perfect simulation of the brain in a computer, it doesn't matter how we build the computer so long as the simulation is accurate that we've recreated the consciousness. So that's a theory which is either true or false. And let's say we all assume it's true, but maybe the people who said, well, the brain has to be made out of these particular chemicals and cells were right all along. And maybe we get to the point where as a cure for, for old age, we transfer our memories into computer versions and robot bodies of our, our brains. Well, if humanity does that and if they were wrong to assume that their consciousness would be maintained, well, now we've effectively turned ourselves into unconscious philosophical zombies. And humanity has basically erased itself from the universe, yet no one notices. Yeah. So that shows how there can be very significant consequences for getting some of these fundamental theories wrong. So we should always bear in mind what are these. Uh, potential consequences and should all of humanity adopt an idea or should we consciously decide to follow two paths in case one path happens to be wrong? Mm -hmm. Or what do you think about the condition of like knowing everything? Because I, I don't know if I'll be happy if I would, you know, hypothetically find the answer to why there's something, anything at all. Or even more than that, how do we no <laughs> you know how do we know for certain that we have the right answer right well i mean let's say hypothetically we could like mathematically prove it or something like that okay, okay yeah sure yeah there is a certain uh appeal of the mystery and the chase of the mystery and there uh being unknown uh or questions that don't have answers and I do think there's some solace in the fact that if we take the implications of uh, Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorems seriously, that does suggest that there's kind of an infinite, never-ending hierarchy of 
better and better ways of understanding and discovering new truths. And no matter how far advanced we are in this progression, there will always be things that are unknown. So while certain mysteries may fall due to the advance of science, and while that may cause some level of unsatisfaction, there's always the promise that effectively we know that at least in the domain of mathematics, there will always be questions that in our current level of understanding, we don't have answers to. And this is true no matter how far humanity uh, advances in our understanding, there will always be unknowns and things that we can't prove with any certainty until we have that next epiphany. And then once we have that, that answers a couple more questions that will in turn create new, a new set of questions that don't have answers. So I guess you could turn this question back to something that in history has kind of fallen to the progression of science. And you can say, well, how, how, does, how do life forms work? How do they initiate movements and reproduce and grow? Because all these things were complete mysteries. If you go to, let's say, the ancient Greeks, you said, well, how does a mouse do everything that it does? What, what's the difference between a live mouse and a dead mouse? And life itself would have been a complete and utter mystery. Like they, they don't know about DNA or cells or metabolism or uh, signals and the uh, nerves coming from the brain and causing the mouse to move in all these ways and perceive its environment. You would say, would you rather live in a world where how the mouse does what it does is a complete mystery to science? Or would you rather live in a world where we can now explain many of these things, which were just uh, insurmountable mysteries to humanity a thousand years ago? And I'd say different personalities may answer that question differently. I do like, I do enjoy the pursuit of growing my understanding and researching topics, which at the outset, I may or may not have any idea where things will lead. And then in doing the research and in, this, in the act of discovery itself, I find very interesting, but each of us can enjoy that act of discovery independently. So you might say, well, but modern biologists can explain uh, how a mouse does what it does. But if you're a kid in kindergarten, that mystery and its solution is yours for you to discover all over again. So when each of us is born, we kind of rediscover and uh, retraverse all the the development of understanding that humanity has developed yeah. from its inception up until the current time. So I think there will always be mysteries, not just for humanity, but each of us personally will, can choose to wrestle with any of these questions. And if it's something you'd rather remain a mystery, well, then just you don't have to investigate that particular question. You can leave it open as a mystery. But if you're an obsessively curious person who just has to know, well, 
then you'll choose to, to do the research or to make it your life's pursuit to find the answer to that question. I mean, I think it's really fascinating how we have all these amazing theories just by asking the most obvious fact ever, the fact that there is a world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it is very remarkable that the simplest questions that children ask probe at kind of the questions that are still driving the very forefront of science. And, and this is true, not just for why does anything exist, but almost any question like, why are we here? Or what's the meaning of life? Or is there a life after death? Um, are we alone in the universe? All these questions not only immediately present themselves to the minds of children, but they, when you follow them, you see they lead to every field of math and science and um, I give the example in, in my article about existence that it was only in this century that we even developed the words that are necessary to talk about some of these theories, like about computation or decidability or virtual, virtual realities or uh, incompleteness theorems. A century ago, none of these concepts existed. We didn't know about the quantum mechanical nature of the universe. We didn't know about the Big Bang. Um, so it's only through kind of the, the very leading wavefront of humanity's exploration of the universe that we've finally uncovered some initial hints that might suggest an answer to this question that's been plaguing us for as long as we've existed as humans. I, I find that uh, very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think something that me and Luke have more recently, or a thought that we've more recently stumbled across is the, um, you know, uh, well, I mean, we've talked about it a bunch of this episode, but it's this, um, humility and you know it's like i guess the the less you know uh the more likely you are to ask and um so you know obviously uh the younger you are the less you know and the more you ask but um i think you know definitely keeping that mindset of um you know there's all there can always be more to learn there can always be more to ask um you know stuff stuff like that um and um just just um living with uh you know a, a perpetual curiosity about things is uh super super important and um i mean it's it's also very rewarding i mean i know it might it might vary from person to person but i think to some extent you know everybody enjoys about learning something new i mean it, depending on subject or um, the method of learning, stuff like that, um, your enjoyment might change. But, um, you know, I think humans uh, just naturally, we we get some sort of 
um, level of fulfillment just by um, understanding things because, you know, it's empowering, right? It, uh, it helps us, um, you know, survive better, live better, um, enjoy our world more, um, you know, function better within reality. And so, um, you know, when you're conscious of uh, that fact and that um, the idea that um, questioning more, always asking <laughs> um, can um, can um, lead to, uh, you know, a, a, a greater uh, enjoyment of your of your life um, uh, is, is uh, definitely, definitely understated in modern day and uh, definitely, I don't know, in my opinion, vital to uh um to i guess i just my life in general you know luke do you feel the same I, I, yeah i completely agree and i think i mean you know the the whole reason why we started this podcast is you know we want to normalize these you know quote deep conversations and you know over lunch or in casual settings yeah yeah right so i think it's it's also very important to know that you know that these questions such as, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? It shouldn't just be, you know, a question for scientists and philosophers, but it should also mm -hmm. be, you know, be, be addressed by the public, you know, be addressed by students. Right. I mean, you know, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, different levels of understanding and stuff like that, you know, like Jason here is uh, much more knowledgeable in these, in these uh, topics than we are, but um you know, we, everybody gets something out of this uh, discussion, right? And so, you know, no matter, um, no matter how, uh, uh, what level of understanding you have, um, just the, uh, I guess the, the drive or the, um, the action of just, just um, asking is, uh, you know, it's always viable and it's always valuable. I agree 100 percent yeah i think one of the unique joys of being a human is the fact that we can ask any question that comes through our mind we can communicate and converse on it mm. um seems no other man uh, animal has language of the sophistication that we humans have and the ability to share ideas it's almost like a superpower i mean if if we didn't understand how it works through voice, we would see it almost as magical form of telepathy. The fact that I can have ideas originate in my brain and I can send some signal through the universe and get your brain to resonate with those same ideas that are happening mm -hmm. in my head is really quite extraordinary when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the act of asking and learning and interacting with others who may have similar questions and passions is uh is really nothing quite like it yeah before we end it off do you have anything else to share um maybe just a, a quote that uh resonates what with what you were saying Devin, when you were saying this should be something that everyone can participate in and engage in you reminded me of this quote by stephen hawking where he said if we do discover a complete theory it should in time be understandable and broad principle by everyone, not just a few scientists. And we shall all philosophers, scientists, and just ordinary people 
be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is that we in the universe exist. That's hmm. perfect quote. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Thank you so much for coming on, Jason. Yeah, we really enjoyed it. Much. I've, I think we learned so much. Oh, Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I look forward to future discussions with you. Yeah, right. of course. Goodbye. <laughs>